You're listening to Saturday Morning Rewind with Tim Nidell. Let's go back in time when turtles roam the sewers of New York. A masked duck protected the streets of St. Canard. I am the terror, the black in the And knowing was half the battle. Yo, yo! It's time for Saturday Morning Rewind. Hey, what's up, guys? Welcome to Saturday Morning Rewind. I am your host, Tim Nidell. This is episode number 12. I don't know about you, but when I think of veteran voice actors that are still working today, there are two that come to mind. One, Frank Welker, which I'm working on getting an interview with, which won't ever happen if you've listened to the Charlie Adler interview I did last time. And number two would be Jack Angel. Jack Angel can be heard on so many, so many shows, great shows. Super Friends, Scooby-Doo, Transformers, Voltron, Darkwing Duck, G.I. Joe, list is on and on. Toy Story 1, 2, Toy Story 3. This man's resume is truly, truly amazing. I seriously just wanted to sit there and just listen to his stories over and over again. because It's so, so many amazing stories. I, I really liked the Samuel L. Jackson story he tells in this and the Lorenzo music story. But before I go into that, there is a contest for this podcast episode. I am going to be giving away some retro Voltron tattoos, some temporary tattoos. It is one sheet of 24 tattoos printed in 1984, unopened, in excellent condition. If you want these temporary tattoos, all you need to do is go to the website at hitrockbottom.org and then go to the podcast page, Saturday Morning Rewind. You'll see the contest form left-hand side. Just put in the word Jack in the secret word slot, and I will be drawing the name on the last day of this month. And now, without any further hesitation, here's my interview with Jack Angel. Hope you enjoy it. From days of long ago, from uncharted regions of the universe, comes a legend. The legend of Voltron, defender of the universe. A mighty robot. Loved by good, feared by evil. So how are you, buddy? Thanks again for doing this for the second time. You know, I'm at, at my age, I'm older than most people in the world. That, that's probably <laughs> true. That's probably true. <laughs> so, let's, yeah, so last night I finished your autobiography, which it's an amazing read. I liked it a lot. Oh, good. I'm glad you liked it. Yeah, it was, it was, it was nice. Those short chapters, too. I enjoyed that. Yeah, that makes it a great bathroom book. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you mentioned being a DJ in the, in the Reno Sparks area. That's where, I, that's where I grew up. I lived in Sparks for about 10 years. Really? Yeah. I was, well, m- different years from when you were there, but... Yeah, obviously. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I had a good time there. Um, I, I worked at KOLO. And then uh, Harris hired me to do a show out of the club. Uh-huh. And, uh, uh, you know, they don't have a door. It's just an air curtain. <laughs> and right above the air curtain is where my studio was. And I could look over the whole casino. <clears throat> and uh, so that was kind of fun. And I did that for about six months. And uh, and then I went back to KOL. I did TV. I was, a, I was the weatherman for a while. And I directed the news and I substituted for sports. Uh, there, I think, was the story about the lady who, uh, about when I said, I, 
I was trying to look at the teleprompter and, 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 and look at the camera rather and not the copy. I was reading the, the sports and I said, uh, uh, seeing all the Boston Red Sox and the Chicago Cubs and all those hard seas, and it came out the Boston Red Cox. <laughs> and, <laughs> and instead of shutting, instead of this going on, People would, in their head, would deny that they heard that. But I stopped and I said, that's Boston Red Sox. <laughs> everybody, I mean, the guys in the soundproof booth were laughing, and I could hear them. Oh, sure. My cameraman was on the floor with a, with a cord around his neck. He was choking to death. <laughs> and I was, my face was buried in the copy. And I, then I turned the page, and here was the funny story in sports. And I looked up the camera and said, now time for the funny story in sports. We're going to have two tonight. <laughs> 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 and then I broke up. And uh, now the next day, I was doing a remote broadcast. Uh, there was a, a, some people who were had model homes out in Sparks, and they wanted uh, somebody to be there and do live commercials. So for me, uh, I was the one chosen. And I'm sitting out there in my little suit with my microphone, and an old lady came in with her husband. And she looked at me and said, I know you. You're Boston Red Cox. God. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I was this uh, the, the, the disc jockey and a, and a program director and a newsman and a, and a weatherman and a director and all that stuff. And what was I going to be known for? Yeah. <laughs> Red Cox. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, well, well. well, hopefully you've outlived everybody from that era. So, you know, hopefully you're, nobody else knows you from that. <laughs> yes, I do. You know, it's funny because there were guys that uh, on Facebook, they got in touch with me that they, they all worked at KOLO. And, uh, and they, they told me stuff and they sent me stuff. And I said, what the hell station was that? I don't remember any of that stuff. And we had a, a wonderful theme, The Sound of the Sierras. And uh, it was a beautiful choral arrangement. And I guess in later years when the station went all rock, they changed it. And uh, still called it The Sound of the Sierras, but they played it for me. <laughs> That's not the song I remember. <laughs> absolutely no connection with KOLO uh, as, as it is now or as it was for many years uh, after I left. So, yeah, I'm actually going back to Sparks Reno in two months. My first time back in, in 20 years. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I got a couple friends that I still keep in touch with, so I'm excited for that. Relive some of my childhood. Yeah, cool. And actually, my dad worked at Harris. He was the executive chef there from 78 to like mid 80s. Really? Uh -huh. Wow. Wow. Well, I I, uh, uh, I used to go. Uh, my studio was I had passed by Bill Harris's office. And uh, one night, I, I looked at, the, I looked at the, the Kino board, it was right in front of me. Uh -huh. and, uh, and I saw that certain numbers kept popping up more often than others. Uh. <laughs> so with the Kino card, I ticked off for, for four hours uh, all the numbers that popped up. And some of them popped up twice as often as the others. And I thought, damn, I'm going to go play these and yeah. a bunch of so I stopped to talk, and I said to Bill, I said, I'm going to break the bank tonight. Bill, and he says, good luck, Jack. <laughs> and then there was a guy named Bob Ring, who was uh, one of the big managers there, and his office was there. And I said, hey, Bob, going to break the bank tonight? Okay. Then I stopped by 
uh, talked to a couple of the girls that, that, that were the switchboard and said the same thing. And they said, okay, good luck. And I got down there, and the game that I had missed because I stopped to talk had oh. seven of the eight numbers. I would have won $25,000. <laughs> and in those days, that was a fortune. Yeah, wow. So I thought, oh, God, I missed it because I stopped to talk, and I never played Kino again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think you had your chance, Jack, and you blew it. <laughs> so how did you step out of the box um, becoming a DJ into, into your first voice acting role? Well, there were a lot of commercials along the way uh, as a disc jockey, uh, which are voice acting roles. Yeah, And I did... Uh, a little bit of television uh, in, in the smaller markets, and I did uh, some theater up in Portland. But uh, when I got to LA, I got a job doing the hell with I guess I was doing Super Friends uh, at Hanna Barbera. I was uh, Hawkman, The Flash, and Super Samurai, mm -hmm. and just skyrocketed from there. Uh, Wally Burr was the director at Hanna-Barbera, and he left and went to uh, uh, create a lot of great shows as a director for Marvel. And uh, so uh, he knew me, and, and they were looking for guys with big voices. And so he hired me to do the Transformers, and, and uh, I was on G.I. Joe, and uh, I was uh, on Spider-Man for a while, the early, early ones. And so... Uh, it just sort of blossomed, and uh, I had a great time just doing all those cartoons. And today, you know, uh, uh, because of Transformers, I mean, I go on Facebook, and every day there's a whole new Transformer thing somebody <laughs> has put up there. And uh, actually, I'm going to I'm going to um, Canada probably in July to go to TFCon. Okay. TF 2013, which is a, they say is the biggest transformer convention in the world. Wow! So I'm going to go up there for a couple of days, and then bop down to New York and spend a week in New York. So, so what are those conventions like? Getting back together with some of your castmates? Oh, you know, they're fine. They sit at a table, and I sit at a table, and we sign autographs, and once in a while we schmooze. And and uh, I did one not long ago. Uh, here in Los Angeles, that was a small one, and it was fun to see those guys. Uh, everybody's aging, <laughs> mostly, mostly. Well, like actually, they. You know, one of the things about this business is that this is all fun and games, and uh, once you get past the idea that you'll never work again, which pops up, you know, as soon as you have a dry spell, you think, "Oh my God, nobody's ever going to hire me again." When you get past all of that, and you realize that you have ups and downs and, and uh, hills and valleys, and you wouldn't know the hills without the valleys. You, the stress of, of being in the bid, that stress part goes away. So now, after with that, then it's just a lot of fun. And uh, I like to tell people that once I got out of the Army and, and got out of college, I never worked another day in my life because it was always playtime. Yeah. You're on the radio. Uh, and uh, it, mine was personality radio where you got to tell jokes and do funny voices and all that stuff. And, and then uh, once I got on the radio, it was doing cartoons and commercials and, and stuff for television. 
And uh, that's all fun games too. So it was just playtime. So without that kind of stress, and then I, I, my second wife, my current wife, with whom I've been married for tw almost 29 years, we had one fight, which was the, uh, 25 years ago, I guess. And I have no idea what the fight was about. <laughs> it, it, you, you might have to strike the sheet. I'm sitting, in, I'm in a snit. She said that I hear the voice after a while. She said, how long are you going to be an asshole? <laughs> and I said, why? And she said, I'm going to go to the mall. Do you want to go with me? And I said, when are you going to go? And she said, five minutes. And I thought for a minute, and I said, okay, I'll be an asshole for five more minutes. And, and once, that, once that was done, she came down, took my hand. We went to the mall. The fight was over, and we never had another reason to fight. <laughs> we subscribed to <laughs> the, the idea, uh, happy wife, happy life. And for me, having been, I was married 25 years before that, and, and it's like, I don't care. If she wants green, get green. If she wants a Lexus, get a Lexus. If she wants that house instead of this house, that's fine with me. I don't care. Get it. And if you don't want it, don't get it. So what happens is there's nothing to fight about. Uh, when we first met, we first got together. She had, uh, had been married before, and I had been married before, but she had been married to a perpetual student, and they never had any money. So when she and I went shopping, she'd say, oh, look, I love that. And I'd say, well, buy it. And she'd say, oh, I better not. And then she'd say, oh, look at that, I love that. And I'd say, well, buy it. And she says, no, I guess I better not. And then I realized she was never going to buy anything because her modus operandi was to window shop but never uh -huh. buy because any money. Uh -huh. And I have three kids from my previous marriage, and I said, uh, Arlene, if, uh, if you don't spend our money on stuff you like just because you like it, and my kids had not been very nice to her, I said, Mike, we will die in a freeway crash, and my kids will spend your money. <laughs> she said, very ladylike, she said, bullshit. <laughs> At that point on, she has spent like a drunken sailor. <laughs> But which is exactly what I wanted to do. Yeah. I, mean, I feel like if, you, if you've got money and you don't spend it, that's crazy. Yeah. Uh, I think you ought to leave your, your heirs with receipts, you know? Uh, so anyway. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about, about Super Friends. I was obsessed with that as a kid. What was the recording process like with Super Friends? Well, uh, we would all get together and line up at Hanna-Barbera and uh, read through it once, and then record it. Um, it was slightly different with Wally Burr, uh, because we didn't, do, uh, we didn't go into the conference room and do a read-through first, which later uh, in other shows we did, uh, once Wally got his, uh, but, but we would do the read-through there. And it was always guys, I mean, uh, I started actually in Challenge of the Super Friends, which was a spin-off of Super Friends. And uh, we had just a mammoth bunch of guys in there, um, all great voice actors and, and funny. Um, and uh, I do three characters. Mine was uh, Hawkman, The Flash, and Super Samurai. And so I, Hawkman was, uh, I've got to save Wonder Woman before it's too late. And The Flash was, I've got to go tell Hawkman before it's too late. 
And then samurai was, oh, samurai, you know, Japanese. And because the, they were looking for authenticity, there was a Japanese artist who worked at Hanna-Barbera. And every time we recorded samurai, he would be there to make sure that I said the Japanese words correctly. I mean, there weren't very many of them. Tolmeningen was one of them, and I have no idea what that means. But he, he would be there, and he'd give me okay sign that I said it okay. And uh, so, but every time, you know. So that's kind of cool. Uh, yeah, uh, Danny Dark was Superman. How'd you like to be the kid that grew up to be Superman? That was really cool. Yeah, Danny had a great voice. Yeah. One, one of the things that Wally said was when you, when you do a superhero, you have to stand with your hands on your hips, like so. Uh -huh. um, because it opens up your root and, and the voice gets bigger. I've got to save Wonder Woman before it's too late. It just comes out bigger. Huh. One of the things that, that I, we noticed in one episode, I, I think the writers didn't really know what to do with Hawkman. Because Hawkman, he wasn't immortal like a lot of them. He just had these wings and he flew around. <clears throat> And he could, he could be hurt, I guess. So in one episode, and I, I, I use this line all the time because that's, that was the line I remember. Hawk, the first time we saw Hawkman, it was, uh, he's, I've got to warn Superman before it's too late. And the next one is, I've got to get to Wonder Woman before it's too late. And the next one is, I've got to see uh, so, you know, somebody else before it's too late. Every line he had was that exact same line. And everybody started laughing every time I spoke my lines. <laughs> So it's like, yeah, the writers didn't know what the hell it was. So that's what they did. I didn't realize that Wally was involved with the Super Friends. I knew G.I. Joe and Transformers, but I didn't realize he was with Super Friends. Uh, he, was the, he was the first director of Super Friends. And the good one. And he, I don't know what happened. He got, he got a beef with Joe Barbera, I guess, and they fired him or he left or whatever. Got a better offer at Marvel. So... Uh, but there was, a, at one time, Wally directed uh, Transformers, uh, G.I. Joe, uh, Gem and the Holograms, which was the number one girl show on television, uh, on the afternoon uh, cartoons, and a couple of other ones. Every show that Wally directed was number one in its time block. Wow. Uh, so, I mean, he was the common denominator. So my assumption is that he was a phenomenal, he was a great director. I mean, he... He knew every line. Uh, he knew exactly how they should be read. Uh, he would give, uh, there was one time I, I thought I was in trouble because uh, he, he would give you a line reading. Uh, listen to this, it's, we're going over the hill now. And I'd say, we're going over the hill now. He said, no, no, you're not doing it right. Listen, you're, we're going over the hill now. We're going over the hill now. Said, no, Jack, listen. And, and finally, I just imitated him. And he said, well, now you're just, you're just imitating me. <laughs> and, and everybody's, you could feel the, in the room, everybody go, oh, my God, it's the end of Jack. <laughs> and he thought for a moment, he said, well, I guess that's okay. So after that, everybody who was in trouble, whenever they couldn't get what Wally was, they would just imitate him and, and he'd buy it. <laughs> <laughs> so, but he, Wally and I had... Um, an interesting relationship based on uh, largely uh, initially on the fact that he had been an army officer in World War II and in the Korean War, and uh, he was a little older than me. I was an army officer during the Korean War, 
So we had that kind of background. And uh, there was a mutual respect for somebody who had made it that far in the military. While he was a tank commander in World War II, and then uh, in the Korean War, he went down to Fort Lewis, Texas, and was teaching armored gunnery uh, to new tank commanders. So, uh, but anyway, we, we had the military as a, a background, and, and so uh, we had a, a little extra added partnership there, you know. He wasn't mean to me like he was to most of the Oh, nice. I, let's skip forward just a little bit and talk about another one of the, the classic cartoons from the 80s, Voltron, in which you voiced King Zarkon. Was that I rule the universe! That had to have been a fun show to work on too, right? Actually, no. <laughs> because, see, it was done in Japanese first. Oh, yeah. The big hit in Japan. And what they did was they combined two shows. I was Zarkon and Hazar. There were two different Voltron shows, and for some reason, these guys decided to put them together. And, and they didn't really mesh together. Uh, but anyway, I was, I was the bad guy, and the really bad guy in both both episodes, both both different versions of it. Um, but what they did was they took out all the Japanese dialogue and they wrote English dialogue. And so since the animation was normally what you do is you do the dialogue and they animate to the dialogue. Well, now that the animation was already done, so we were stuck with what was there. And uh, so they'd say, okay, your line is this long, uh, four seconds. I rule the universe. No, a little bit faster. I rule the universe. No, a little slower. I rule the universe. Okay, that's it. Okay, move on to the next line. And so they would take each person in individually and just do their lines. There was no continuity. We had no relationship to the other actors because we all did it by ourselves. Oh, okay. And so they had to know. Uh, you know where the emphasis was, whether whether he was really really loud or really soft or or whatever. They, they had to convey to us uh, what the situation was, and then we would do those lines. So uh, it would take a couple of hours, maybe maybe not even a couple of hours, to do a whole a whole episode because I would just do my lines. We had 125 episodes, and we did 125 episodes in six months. Wow. And then they said, well, we don't want to have to mess around with residuals, so uh, we'll do a 10-run buyout. So a 10-run buyout in those days was uh, $1,200 an episode. So if you do the math, 12, 125 episodes times uh, $1,200, everybody bought houses and Porsches, W's <laughs> and stuff. Everybody was flush. So it was a great gig. And uh, I had just been married, so my wife and I bought a house. Uh, I mean, that was the that was the main portion of the down payment for a, a house in those days. Uh, so it was great, uh, but we didn't even see the characters until. Well, sometimes they would bring a picture and say, "This is your guy." Uh, and amazingly, I mean, there are people out there who are just as rabid about Voltron as the people who are about. Uh, Transformers. Yeah, you know? yeah, there are. And I was gonna say it's kind of astonishing that Hollywood hasn't picked it up yet and made a big blockbuster movie. Yeah. Well, of course, you know, if they do, they're gonna get Will Smith to play your character. Well, now let me tell you, 
incidentally, funny thing. Uh, Samuel L. Jackson, it plays the part now that I played in Spider-Man. Now they're going to do Nick Fury on some show, and I don't know what show it is, and Samuel L. Jackson is going to be Nick Fury. Okay, so that's okay. I mean, everybody, uh, they want stars to play these characters, and I I understand that. So there's a website I have a link to on my website. It's called By the Numbers. And this website has compiled a list of all the movies and how much money they made and who was in them. In the category of of, uh, $100 million movies, big blockbuster movies, I, for a long time, was number four. Frank Welker was number one. He's far away, number one, nobody's going to catch him. Uh, number two and three was Tom Hanks and Tom Cruise, and they would, and I was number four. And then Samuel L. Jackson bumped me, and he became number four. And he went on, uh, he went on the Howard Stern show, and he was talking about that website. <laughs> he said, "Yeah, I mean, he said, look, I'm number four in hundred million dollar movies." And Stern said, "Well, who's uh, Frank Welker and Jack Angel?" <laughs> Those aren't real actors. Those are voiceover guys. So, so uh, when I was down at, uh, in San Diego at Comic-Con, it was on a dais, and they were, the dais was for a lot of voice actors. And uh, so there were like 10 of us. And somebody mentioned that website. And I said, well, as long as you've mentioned that, that website, I'll tell you a story, Samuel L. Jackson. And, and I said, when I said, they aren't real actors. They're voiceover actors. Everybody booed. <laughs> said, so what I'd like to do is challenge Samuel L. Jackson to meet Frank Welker and me in a recording studio of his voice, and we will go ahead and see who the best actors are. Uh, and everybody cheered like crazy, but Sammy didn't ever call. Wow. I guess he doesn't want to meet the challenge. <laughs> he probably uh, YouTubed the both of you and just figured it out. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> well, he's a one-trick pony. Oh, I mean, yeah. You know, I don't want to take anything away from him. He's a star, and and he does what he does. Uh, but he he couldn't do two voices to save his soul. You know, he's he's the guy who does snakes on the train on a plane, and you know what the dialogue is there. Yes, I do. Okay, well enough said. <laughs> yeah, I mean, at least at least like somebody like Lorenzo Music had a a unique voice you know and he can use that in in the in the voice acting world but samuel jackson uh no yeah he's a one-trick pony i used to call uh lorenzo up and say oh oh hello, lorenzo this is you <laughs> <It's Al> jack <laughs> and my wife said that called him one time she said hi lorenzo this is you and she said lorenzo does everybody do that she said no just you and jack <laughs> <laughs> I love Lorenzo. And he died. Yes, I know. It's just a shame. But he, yeah, he was a charming guy. And uh, he used to invite us over to, to they, would, they would sing. They would do sing-alongs. And the, they, they, all their friends would get together and they would sing songs. You know, just, just sit there and sing. And, uh, yeah, he, he was uh, Norman, your doorman. Yeah. And, and then he was uh, the cat. Garfield. Garfield, yeah. And then he did the Ghostbusters and, yeah, yeah great, great voice. 
All right. You know, another person that you know just recently passed was Jonathan Winters. I know he did. Lately, he's been doing Papa Smurf, but you also did Papa Smurf a couple of years ago for the Christmas special they did. Are you by chance going to take over that role? Well, let me explain it to you. Jonathan was 87 when he died and, uh, and not in good health. And he would sit, there's a second movie coming out, and he did the dialogue for the movie. But he was sitting there, yeah, I'm Papa Smurf. And they'd say, more energy, Jonathan. Yeah, I'm Papa Smurf. And they couldn't get him to get the energy up. So I would go in later and redo the lines and with the energy up because I could hit his voice right on. So I did, I looped kind of uh, most of the second movie that's coming out. Wow. And then there was a, uh, a talking toothbrush that, uh, of Papa Smurf uh, for the little kitties that teaches them to, like, there you go, you're doing a good job. Do it in the back now. Oh, that's good. Keep going. And keep brushing. And, and now, now do the bottom. And so it gets them brushing for two minutes, which is the target thing. And Jonathan was going to do it, but then he, he didn't feel good, so I did it. And then there's a game, and I did the voice in the game. And there's a commercial coming up, which I may do uh, a tie-in with uh, uh, McDonald's. Then he died, and the word came back that the number one guy over at Sony or over at whoever it is, uh, everybody likes me. Everybody wants me to do it. But the number one guy said, well, let's look for a star. Of course. Robin Williams does it. Or maybe we find somebody who does that voice and, and he'd be a star. And, and I understand that, that they, they, we call that, if you'll pardon the expression, star f And everybody wants a star on their movie. And what that's going to do is uh, that's, they think that's going to give them bigger box office if, if a star is the voice of one of their characters. You know, the kids don't know who the stars yeah. are. They don't care. Yeah. They want to hear Papa Smurf. So, but, you know, uh, uh, one of the people, uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg, who's the big hotshot over at DreamWorks, he said uh, in print, I hire stars. I don't know why they're stars, but they're stars for a reason, and they have more going for them than people who aren't stars, so I hire them. Now, there's a flaw in that, in that everybody who is a star at some time in their life wasn't. Let's take uh, Friends. Friends was a very popular show, and the day before that came out, there was only one person who was a star. The rest of them were total unknowns. Most of them never did anything. And all of a sudden, here they are. They're on this show, and it becomes a mammoth hit, and now they're stars. Oh, my God, they're stars. Well, when Friends came out, we sat around and said, if we were to cast that show, we could do it ten times with the people we know, and every one of the people that we would have cast would have been just as good as the people in the show. It's in the writing, not so much in the acting in most shows. If it's not, in the, if it's not on the script, I don't care how good the actor is, it's never going to fly. Yep. And, and this town is filled with wonderful actors who are working in restaurants and selling shoes. So, you know, for Katzenberg to say, uh, well, we, these, these people are stars for a reason. The reason is they got lucky. Mm -hmm. That's 
He said, they got lucky. They were there when the guy said, yeah, you. Just another pretty face. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's just hope they don't get Samuel L. Jackson to play Papa Smurf. (laughs) 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 Which I can can see them doing that, too. (laughs) Yeah, right. Yeah, can you you imagine the language of... (laughs) smurf <laughs> yeah. all right well I, I can't bypass another one of the classic shows from the 80s which we've already touched upon a little bit was transformers now which roles did you play you played so many of transformers seven roles yeah I'm trying to remember all of them uh because i'm gonna go to this uh, tf con and i thought well i don't know which roles i played uh i started with smokescreen and ramjet and then uh i did uh uh, Astro Train. Uh, I did. Uh, no. the, when they did the movie, the memory page. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, was it Ultra Magnus? Yes, Ultra Magnus. I, I, I was not Ultra Magnus in the movie. Uh, Robert Stack was. Okay. And Robert Stack at the time was a big star, and he was going to do the movie, but he wasn't going to do the show. I mean, he was too big a, a guy to do uh, a, a kid's show in the afternoon. Um, so they needed somebody who sounded like him, and I won the part. So after the movie, and, and Ultra Magnus appeared for the first time in the movie. So uh, I became Ultra Magnus. And then uh, Orson Welles was uh, Cyclonus. And, uh, you know, big, big voice Cyclonus. And, and after that, uh, he wasn't going to do the the the, the, the uh, series either. So Roger C. Carmel became the voice of Cyclonus. But Roger stuffed the, too much cocaine up his nose one day, and he died. And uh, so they said, okay, Jack, we want you to be Cyclonus. And I thought, Jesus, I'm, I'm going to be Cyclonus. And everybody that did that shit, that part died so far. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I guess I... I guess I didn't, it wasn't my turn. <laughs> <laughs> not yet, not yet. So anyway, I did that. And then uh, there were a couple of other parts, and they were apparently not memorable because I can't remember <laughs> what they were. What, which one was your, the worst throat ripper for you? Which one left you sore after the end of the day? Uh, well, I probably Ramjet uh, because he was a mean guy, you know. But most... Uh, you know what? One of the worst throat rippers was not even one of those. It was the it was the uh, it was the Gord head minister in uh, Beetlejuice. Uh, Beetlejuice, yeah, uh, yep, yeah. Because that I because largely because I yeah, do you take this woman and they say and he said no no nobody says the B word and I said do you take this woman to be your wedded wife. And I had to do it over and over and over because in a movie, uh, they're going to do it eight ways to Sunday. You know, it was always exactly the same. They never gave me any direction. They just said, do it again. And after a while, it really shreds your throat. And I used to tell them, I said, you know, I'm going to go home after this and gargle just to see if my neck leaks. <laughs> and, and most of it, we did, uh, we, we did uh, the Hunchback of Notre Dame, and there were two days where Paris was burning, and we had to scream. And that was another one where you go home and, and uh, gargle. 
Uh, nowadays, there are a lot of games, and they say, well, this is going to be vocally stressful. And I say, well, if it's going to be vocally stressful, I don't want to play. Uh, I used to laugh at the old guys when I was young who didn't want to do it because they said it, it took them too long to recoup afterwards. And uh, But now I understand what they were talking about. It, it takes too long for me to get back to normal after shredding my, my throat for two hours, you know, or four hours. And they, ca- they don't seem to care that you have a career other than their show. And they want now do it again and really give it, really scream it this time, scream it this time. And uh, my voice never used to have all this crap in it like you, like you hear now. But that all came from a little bit of age, but mostly screaming those voices. <clears throat> and uh, so uh, it's okay because now I, I'm playing older guys and they say, yeah, make it, give them some crap in your throat. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have to give it any. And then you were the voice of Teddy and AI, another great role for you. That was maybe the best of all of them, uh, only from the standpoint that, uh, as you know, I got to spend three months on the set with Steven mm-hmm. Spielberg with nothing to do because we recorded all my lines the first day. But he said, whenever I want to make a change, I want you there. And so he was willing to pay me to be on the set. And uh, I got to be good set friends with Jude Law and uh, with uh, Haley, Joel Osment, and uh, Haley's father. You know, there were a lot of really good actors that were on that, in that show, and, and we became fast set friends. Never carries over beyond just yeah. being set. Although Jude went on, nine years later, was on Broadway playing Hamlet, and we went to see him, and sent a note back saying that I was in the audience and we went back to see him backstage. And, and uh, so we schmoozed and he said, yeah, Haley, who was going to NYU at the time, came to see the show. And uh, so maybe we had a nice, nice chat. So he's a good guy. Yeah, he seems like a very nice guy. And, and that movie, you know, I don't, it wasn't a huge hit, but I think it did very well for his career. Oh, yeah. Well, it, in the funny thing, it was a huge hit by all the measurement. It was over a hundred million dollars. Yeah, uh, which I think is one of the one of the, the the earmarks of whether it's a hit or not. It just never kind of connected with uh, the audience that it should have connected with. It was quite innovative, but Spielberg never wanted to do that movie in the first place. Okay, it turned Stanley Kubrick down. About three times, Kubrick wanted him, wanted him to direct it, and he said, no, he didn't want to. And then Kubrick died, and the family came to Spielberg, and they said, uh, uh, Stephen, you're the only one he trusted with that movie. Please do it. Aww. So he relented, and he did it. And most of the critics would say, well, it was a hybrid. It was part Spielberg and part Kubrick, and <laughs> ne'er the twain should meet. You know, and Everybody's always critical. Uh, the people who can't possibly do a movie are the ones who are critical about who did the movie. And uh, so that's, that's always kind of a bug to me, you know, yeah. the, the critics. Before I let you go, I do want to talk about your, your Pixar connection. So now that Disney owns Star Wars, is there a possibility you might want to be in a Star Wars movie? Well, I'm not much of an on-camera actor. Uh, I, I, uh, I, I just did, a, by the way, a, a commercial 
for Nintendo where I was on camera. Oh, really? As an old man. And uh, the gag is that these two boys are playing this Nintendo game and they get further into it and further into it and further into it and further into it. And at the end of the commercial, they've turned 72 years old. <laughs> I'm the guy with the, the, the one, one of the kids with a, with a long beard and there's another guy with a, with a beard. And we look at each other and go, ah, what happened? How long were we in there? And so that's, that's the joke about how, uh, how cool the game is. Uh, so I had pictures of me uh, with a big long. I put it on my Facebook page. Said, "Who is this man?" And people said, "Moses and God and and Gandolfo, uh, uh, Gandalf, yeah, and all kinds of crazy things." Uh, but it was just me. So, so, but I don't. You know, I haven't done an on-camera role since doing a judge on The Young and the Restless 10 years ago, uh-huh. uh, 15 years ago, I guess it was. Yeah, 15 years ago. Now, with Star Wars, you can do voiceover. You can be like one of the aliens or one of the robots yeah. or something. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> just because I've done a lot of stuff at Pixar, and, yeah. and Pixar and Disney are now sort of one, that doesn't really mean anything. No, not nowadays. There are there are so many actors, and, and each director has favorites, and and they uh, they have casting directors who uh, all have favorites, and so it's it's hard to say, you know. I mean, if, I'd love to do it, but it may, you know, who knows? Yeah. Now I'm assuming you'll you'll at least play Chunk again in uh, Toy Story Four. Well, I don't think Chunk is going to be in Toy Story Four because oh, he's, he's part. Of Okay. Yeah, I forgot that he was one of one of the the bad guys that was. Yeah. So he, if Toy Story four, I'm assuming, is going to be about the little girl who inherited all the toys, yeah. and some adventure having to do with her, and uh, I I don't think Chuck is there, but maybe they'll give me another another role. Maybe they'll bring back the strongman toy from Toy Story one. All right, Jack. I think that's all of my questions here. Oh, do you remember any time working on Darkwing Duck as a liquidator? Yeah, sure. I used to love that show. We called him Licky. Licky. Jimmy McSwain was the director uh, on that show, and Jimmy is a wonderful animation director. The only problem Jimmy always had was that she would she didn't like the suits very well, and sometimes the suits would be sitting there in the booth watching the show, and. Because they are the executive producers, every once in a while they want to press the talk button and tell an actor what to do. And Jenny won't allow that. And to the point where she would turn to them and say, don't talk to my actors. (laughs) They don't like to be talked to that way. (laughs) (laughs) Where is is there a choice of directors? They would choose somebody else. Uh, and she knew she did that, and she's still working. But she, uh, she probably could have been working a lot more if she, if she wasn't so nasty to the producers. That <laughs> <laughs> uh, she's got more balls than they do. I'll tell you. <laughs> Actually, Gordon Hunt was the uh, Helen Hunt's father. Gordon Hunt was the guy that uh, was the main director. Of all the shows at Hanna Barbera, once Wally and a couple of other guys left, Gordon did it all, and he had assistants. And all of the assistants were girls. Uh, Jenny McSwain 
was his assistant. And all of the shows that she directs are as a direct result of what she learned sitting at the left hand of Gordon Hunt. And then there was uh, two or three other girls. Uh, 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 Andrea Romano was the next one. Okay. And Andrea directs uh, a whole bunch of stuff over at Warner Brothers. And she directs exactly the way Gordon Hunt directed. And, uh, and then there uh, was uh, uh, Chris uh, Zimmerman. And Chris Zimmerman uh, was, the, was the third assistant. And she also is now a director and directs a lot of animation and for Cartoon Network and places. And she directs exactly like the girls. <laughs> like uh, Gordon Hunt did. Gordon was a, he was really amazing in that with all the guys, uh, Michael Bell and Danny Dark and, and uh, uh, Dick Godier and just all these, all these wonderful actors who were very glib and off the top of their heads were very funny. Uh, Gordon would make comments and the guys would make comments back. And so there were like 10 guys throwing wise-ass remarks at Gordon. And Gordon would always throw a wise-ass remark back. And it was a topper. And apparently he didn't know that he did that. Because one day, years later, I was working with him, and, and I turned to the other people, and I said, yeah, I worked with Gordon, and here's what happened. He used to top all these guys. He said, I did? And I said, you didn't know you did that? And he said, no. And I said, everybody admired you so much because nobody ever could top you you always top them. He said, oh, I didn't know that. So I'm glad I was able to finally tell <laughs> Yeah. Nice. All right, Jack. I, I really do want to thank you so much for your time again. Uh, before I let you go, could I have you close the podcast as King Zarkon? You, first off, you have to edit out all my shame shame words, right? Yep. Well, yeah, I, it's not as... I, I interviewed Charlie Adler for the last episode. That's gonna be that was hundred times worse. <laughs> oh, let me tell you my Charlie Adler story. <laughs> okay, it's just nasty. Uh, first off, if you read my book, you understood that Charlie. Oh, uh, did I have it in that book? Maybe not. Uh, I asked Charlie how. First off, he came to L.A. with the touring company of uh, Harvey Firestein's Torch Song trilogy which had been a big smash on Broadway. And uh, uh, so uh, he, he was looking to get out, find somebody as a replacement, Harvey Firestein. So uh, he was having open auditions. And Charlie lived in Nyack, New York. And he decided he was going to audition for the part. And I said, well, how did you get that? Because you don't look anything like Harvey and you don't sound anything like Harvey. He said, I got on the train and I said to myself, you are a light bulb, a light bulb. And the closer you get to New York, the brighter you're going to shine. And you, when you get to New York, you're going to, on the street, you're going to walk on the street and you're going to be so brilliant, people are going to step aside for you. And when you get on that stage to audition, you are going to be so bright that they're not going to see anybody but you. And he said, I got the part. And I thought, wow, that's a kind of a cool story. I tell young people that, be a light bulb. So uh, anyway, Charlie came, when he came to town, uh, my agent decided to represent him. And uh, she, uh, Charlie auditioned, the first 12 things he auditioned for, he got. Now, if you get one out of 12, usually 
you're pretty good. Uh-huh. He got 12 out of 12. And then he didn't get number 13, and he called, and he said, uh, uh, what happened with that? And she said, oh, you didn't get that one. And he said, what, what do you mean I didn't get it? And she said, well, Charlie, you can't win them all. And he said, oh, oh I thought I could. <laughs> then the final thing about Charlie, and the nasty part was, when he didn't like somebody, he would call him a c- sucker. Now, Charlie is the gayest guy you've ever met in your life. So one day I said to Charlie, Charlie, you make that sound like a bad thing. <laughs> he got it. He got it. He said, well, yeah, you're right. So from that point on, <laughs> people he didn't like, he called him a cunt. <laughs> so um, then he would burst into Arlene's office and in the, in the lobby, and without any regard to who might be sitting there, he would throw the door up and say, Hello, all you cunts! <laughs> and there would be kids there. You know, Charlie, what the hell are you doing? You can't do that. So, uh, anyway, you don't have to run this part on your show. <laughs> That's a great story, <laughs> though. I might have to. <laughs> I'll put a disclaimer in front of it. Yeah. Oh, he's, he's crazy. He's absolutely crazy. But, you know, he's a great talent. Oh, yeah. Huge. Yeah, so, yeah, go ahead and close it as King Zarkon. Okay. Let's see. Uh... All right, all you cunts! Oh, wait. (laughs) (laughs) Lost my head there. I want to thank Tim for asking me to be on this show, because he knows I rule the universe! Thanks again for checking out Saturday Morning Rewind. I really do appreciate it. Remember to sign up for our giveaway contest that I mentioned earlier in the podcast. Just go to hitrockbottom.org slash saturdaymorningrewind.html and fill out a little survey on the left-hand side using the secret word that I used earlier in this podcast episode. And while you're there, check out the Saturday Morning Rewind merchandise you can buy and also follow me on Twitter and Facebook. All the links are right there on the podcast page. And also don't forget to rate me on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. Here's a quick tease for the next episode. Prince John, challenge you to a duel. <laughs> Take that, and that, and this. Robin Hood and Little John walking through the forest, laughing back and forth at what the other has to say. Thanks again. See you next time.